close the door? No. Not yet. Welcome to Populist Perspective Interviews and Tomas Reichatz. Today we have someone who knows local politics like the inside of his hand. He's been serving on the Cambridge City Council since 2013, and before that served four terms on the Cambridge School Committee starting in 2003. He served one term as mayor from 2018 to 2020, and is now serving as vice mayor. Mark McGovern, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, congratulations on becoming vice mayor. Uh, as someone who has spent the last 20 plus years in local government, what are you hoping to bring to this role? Uh, well, thank you. So the so this is my second time as vice mayor. Uh, I was vice mayor before I was mayor, mm -hmm. um, so I have a little experience with it. And uh, you know, the role of the vice mayor is uh, to sort of step in for the mayor when the when the mayor is unable to do certain yes. things, right? Either chair a meeting or a certain event or. Um, so I'll be doing I'll be doing those types of things, you know. Uh, tonight, for example, I'll be uh, speaking at the Demo uh, Cambridge Democratic City Committee meeting because the mayor is unable to be there because of a previous uh, another uh, conflict, um, you know. But it is also a leadership role on the council, which is something I'm proud of, and I'm proud that my colleagues uh, are appreciative that my colleagues uh, elected me, you know, to serve in that position, um, and so. You know, in terms of with our system of government, whether it's the mayor or the vice mayor, um, we all kind of have the same. Our votes all count the same, yeah. right? There's no more. It's not like, you know, we don't have a strong mayor system mm -hmm. or a strong vice mayor. Um, so, you know, in some ways, you know, my role is not going to change dramatically, other than a little more responsibility in terms of some of the more public-facing kind of things. Um, but you know, there is. You know the council. You know does uh, pay a little deference to the mayor and the vice mayor on, on things because we are uh, more in a leadership role. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited about it. it it's uh, it's a great it's a great honor and um, happy to be back on the council and uh, keep working to make this city even better than it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with the election of many new members of the city council, um, with the resignations of many of the people who were previously on there. Uh, what do you think is going to be the best strategy for dealing with um, important issues uh, that you and the mayor want to address um, with like a lot of these new people coming in? And how are you going to sort of build off of that to um, get what you want done? Sure. Um, well, when, when I first, so in 2013, when I first got elected to the city council, we actually had four new members. So almost half the council uh, was new. And so have a little bit of experience and and we've had throughout my time on the council there's there's typically been you know a changeover yeah. to some extent right so so this isn't totally new for us mm -hmm. um you know the, the the flip side too with the three new members that uh that came on aisha wilson is has been on the school committee for two terms so she's not an unfamiliar face yeah. right so you know we know her i know her we've worked on things together and um uh, she's a fellow social worker, which I love. Um, and then you have Jeevan, Sabrina Wheeler, who served on the council already, and now he's back. So th the only sort of really new person who um, is con con uh, Joan Pickett, 
who, by the way, was, you know, for the last 20 plus years has been involved in the na- Mid-Cambridge Neighborhood Association and, mm-hmm. and other um, sort of community-based organizations. So she's not even an unfamiliar face yeah. to most of us anyway, So uh, even though she hasn't served. So, you know, I think that that, that helps, right, because you already know each other and, and you don't have to kind of quite go through the same getting to know you process as mm-hmm. if you were complete strangers. So in that regard, I think that, you know, that's, that's, that's positive. Um, you know, I think that, uh, like any council, we're going to have, uh, we're going to agree on a whole lot of things and we're going to disagree on a whole lot of things and that's okay. And, and I think that's good, you know, um, having that sort of debate and, and that dialogue, um, can help lead to a better place. Um, you want to do it respectfully. You want to do it, um, you know, as collaboratively as as you can. Um, sometimes we don't always live up to those standards. Sometimes I don't always live up to those standards. I have bad days too, like everybody else. Um, but it is about, you know, trying to come together, you know, as a group that not only for sort of the things that you care about, but what are the things that we all care about, right? And, and you know, we're sort of lucky in Cambridge. I mean, it, it's... Um, you know, when you talk about the environment, for example, mm-hmm. right? Nobody on the Cambridge City Council is saying climate change isn't real. Yeah. Nobody on the council is saying, you know, I don't believe the science, right? This is a hoax. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nobody on the council says, I don't care about affordable housing. Yeah. Um, you know, so we're all kind of in the same ballpark. We have maybe some different ways on how to deal with those issues. Some of us may be more aggressive on some of those issues than others. Some of us may, you know, prioritize those issues differently. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're not talking about this. Isn't Congress? We're not talking about a divided council where, you know, people are digging in their heels along party lines and and unwilling to sort of reach across the table and get something done. So I'm I'm really optimistic about it. I, I think it's a good group, um, and you know, I think we'll. I think we'll do a very, a very good job by the city. Again, people aren't always going to like where we end up, but mm-hmm. you know that that's life. Um, I'm not going to win, you know, every debate or, or every policy that I want to see passed. Um, you know, but the question is sort of one thing I've always sort of prided myself on, and I think most of us do this, is not holding grudges. Yeah. Right. So I could have a you know. Paul Toner and I could have a fierce debate about bike lanes, right? Mm-hmm. And be and not vote the same way. But then on the next issue, we're co-sponsoring something together, right? And that's, you know, when you hold grudges, when you take things personally, when you refuse to work with your colleagues, that's when you start to see it the process erode. And I don't think we're gonna do that. I, I don't think we've done that in the last couple of councils. Um, we got a lot of things passed last term um you know during the election a lot of people said oh this council's dysfunctional and I, I don't think we were i think we had moments where we maybe weren't our best selves you know but that's going to happen but for the most part we landed in, in good places and and we got a lot of stuff done and i assume we're going to continue to do that yeah um and sort of ballparking off of that do you think that um like there is going to be that sort of change in dialogue especially with um the three new people following, like three of who were considered among the more progressive people on the uh, city council. Do you think that there's going to be kind of like a change in discussion in that respect? Or do you think you already know these three people from 
having seen them around, not much is really going to change within the sort of scheme of things. Yeah, I think it depends on the issue. You know, I think, you know, if you take it, if you take affordable housing, for example, the council has had, and again, I say this with the caveat that, you know, everybody supports affordable housing. There are just some of us that I think are more aggressive in tr wanting to deal with that issue yeah. and are willing to, you know, ch have things change in the city a little bit uh, more quickly than maybe some other people are comfortable with, right? So we have different ideas on how to get there and how to solve this problem. I don't think that's changed much in this council. I think, you know, uh, Vice Mayor Mallon and Councilor Zondervan were both, you know, pro-housing. I think Councilor uh, Wilson and Sabrina Wheeler are mm -hmm. fill those two seats, right? Yeah. Councilor Carlone, who, again, was not against affordable housing, but had a, he and I had different mm -hmm. views on how to get there. Um, you know, he's been replaced by, by Councilor Pickett, who I think is more in line with his way of thinking. So I don't think, I don't think that, I don't think the votes have changed, you know, dramatically or, or whatnot. I think people have just kind of replaced, you know, right. uh, on that issue, right? Yeah. Um, on bike lanes, which is the other, you know, affordable housing and bike lanes were like the biggest issues during the election. And um, that I think has changed, right? We, you know, Councilor Zondervan and, and Vice Mayor Allen were both um, very pro uh, bike lane and, and the cycle safety ordinance and whatnot. Um, you know, Councillor Pickett is less so. Um, Councillor Wilson is less so. Not, again, not that, you know, no one's saying that we should get rid of them, but, um, you know, they're not as aggressively in favor, right, as the vice mayor, former vice mayor and Councillor Zondervan were. So that's that dynamic has changed, right? Yeah. So what was a sort of seven to two kind of thing is now more of a five to four kind of thing. So you might see some movement there, right? Um, you know, you might see some some changes there because that dynamic is different. Um, you know, but I, again, I, I think for the most part, people are, you know, we all want to support small businesses, right? We all want to help our unhoused population. We all want to make sure our schools are funded properly and, and, um, and meeting the needs of all kids. We, you know, we all want our city to be a, a, a safe place for everybody. Um, so it, again, it's not like we're, you know, there's, there's nobody on the council that's running on a Trump agenda, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there'll be nuances, there'll be some differences, there'll be, you know, some nibbling around the edges of kind of how do we want to deal with these things. But at the end of the day, I think we'll land in good places. Um, at least I hope so. We're going to try. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, as you and now three-time Mayor Simmons were being uh, sworn in recently, uh, there was a protest that was happening outside in which participants were accusing you and the rest of the council of being complicit in genocide and not calling for a ceasefire in um, the in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Do you sympathize with their rationale, or do you think that this is just kind of another example of misinformed or underinformed activists yelling at the wrong people? Um, this is a complicated issue and we actually there is a ceasefire resolution on for Monday night that I'm a co-sponsor of and I can talk about that um, you know I'll say right off the top that I respect people's right to protest peacefully I don't support vandalism or violence or um, intimidation um, so I, I you know people have a right to show up it's a public meeting and they have a right to express themselves we do have some rules in the council 
uh, around what you can speak to at public comment and what you can't, and sometimes people violate those rules. Um, I wish they wouldn't because they're there for a reason. Um, but I get it. You know, I, people feel very, very passionately and very strongly. This is, you know, this is a horrible situation, right? I mean, there's lots of thousands and thousands and thousands of people dying on both sides of, of this issue. So, um, so I, I understand the passion, you know, behind it. Um, for people to say that if we don't pass a ceasefire resolution, then you know, innocent people are going to continue to be killed. I think the Cambridge City Council is a very influential organization, a very influential body. We have absolutely no influence over what's going on in the Middle East. Um, you know, we can influence potentially our elected officials that are sort of higher up on the political food chain than we are, Elizabeth Warren, Markey, um, Ayanna. Um, you know, maybe by passing something to say to them, hey, we want you to vote a certain way or do something. I think that's perfectly reasonable and that's well within our right. We do that kind of thing all the time. I have no issue with that. For anyone to think that somehow Hamas or Netanyahu are going to care what Cambridge thinks, that's, yeah. you know, that's kind of, I don't, I would not agree with that, right? Now, I understand that the goal is if we do it, then Somerville does it, then Boston does it, mm -hmm. then Worcester does it, then Springfield does it, and then you know we start to create this momentum. So I I, I get that part of it. Um, so you know, but for me, so we had so there was a a, a resolution. How, do, do we have do I have time? I, I just I talk a lot, so yeah, we're, we're yeah, good. Okay. Yeah, um, so. Um, there was a, a ceasefire resolution filed in November mm. by uh, Councilor Zondervan and then Mayor Siddiqui. And we heard from, when that became public, it, the agenda comes out on Thursday night for the following Monday's meeting. When, when that came out publicly, we got a lot of emails and phone calls from folks in the Jewish community who felt that that order was too slanted as anti-Israel. Um, now, I, you know, I am not Jewish, um, but I, and I'm not going to tell someone who's Jewish whether something is anti-Semitic or not. That is not for me to decide in the same way it's not for me to decide as a white person to tell someone, a person of color, that something is or isn't racist. If they feel that it is, I'm going to respect that feeling. So I was trying. So we were trying to be respectful of the folks in the Jewish community who were feeling, you know, a rise in anti-Semitism. We know that there's a rise in anti-Semitism around the country, and even here in Cambridge, um, you know, they had issues with some of the wording that was in that document, uh, in that resolution. And so, the, the plan, at least what I thought was the plan, was that Councillor Nolan, myself. Councillor Simmons, now Mayor Simmons, and Councillor Toner were going to file a substitute order that kind of toned it down a little bit. Still called for going on record supporting a ceasefire, release of the hostages and humanitarian aid, but it took out a lot of the language that people sort of felt was inflammatory. We never got a chance to bring that forward. And what ended up happening at that meeting was the original policy order came forward. Councillor Zondervan spoke to it. The mayor then called on Councillor Nolan, who was going to bring in the substitute order so that we could have a debate in public and talk about it and hopefully reach a solution, right? C 
Councillor Nolan did what's called called the question, which when when a it's a parliamentary procedure that when someone calls the question, all debate on that issue stops, and you have to take a vote on whether or not you're going to vote on the original policy order without any debate, without any amendments, without any discussion, or are you going to call the question, or are you not going to call the question, in which case you keep the debate going. It takes six votes to call the question. Counts, uh, Mayor, Mayor Siddiqui at the time, Councillor Azim and myself were the only three councillors to vote against calling the question. We wanted the conversation to continue. We wanted the substitute order to come in. We wanted to have that discussion on the floor and hopefully come up with a resolution back in November. We never got the opportunity to do that because the other six councillors voted to end debate. I think that was, I don't agree with that decision. Um, we had four hours of public comment. There were hundreds of people in the audience and on Zoom that were expecting us to do something, mm -hmm. right? They deserved to hear that conversation. Um, but the end result was, you know, a number of us ended up voting present, and I never got the chance to explain. I did it in a written statement after, but I never got the chance to really explain why I was voting present because you weren't allowed to discuss it anymore. And yeah. based on the feedback that I had received from folks in the community that had issues with the language that was in that order, I felt it would have been more divisive to the community to vote yes. But I also agreed we should call for a ceasefire. So I didn't want to vote no. My only other option is to vote present. And I'm really disappointed that we didn't have the opportunity to try and deal with that issue then. Um, fast forward, right? The elections happen. We have sort of a lame duck session, right? Three councilors leaving, three coming in. The new council gets sworn in in January. And so then a number of us, uh, myself, Councilor Siddiqui, Councilor Wilson, and uh, Councilor Sabrina Wheeler said, you know, maybe we revisit this, this ceasefire resolution. We're now over 100 days of this war, mm -hmm. 20 to 30,000 innocent people killed. Um, there are still hundreds of Israelis being held hostage. Um, you know, there's well over a million people who are without food and water and shelter and medical, medical aid, um, children who are dying as a result, as collateral damage, you know, in this war. Um, it's time to ask for a ceasefire, to call for a ceasefire, and and you it, and and so we decided that we would file uh, a policy order that's going to be coming up on Monday Monday night's meeting, and we tried very hard to thread a very difficult needle. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't see our role as a council to take a side politically in this position, to say Israel's right or that Hamas is right, Palestine's right. Um, we have no influence over that. That's not our, we're not federal federal elected officials. That's not, yeah. we don't have that role. But as I said, you know, said before, you know, we, we heard that there are people in thousands, hundreds, thousands of people in Cambridge, some more pro-Israel, some more pro-Palestine, who are hurting. And that we do have a responsibility to address, right? And so we want to try and bring the community 
together rather than divided even more than it may already be, right? And so we filed a policy order that we think really threads that needle. It's factual. On October 7th, yeah. Hamas did this. Netanyahu administration responded with military force that has resulted in this. There's a humanitarian crisis. We go on record, you know, asking our elected officials in Washington to support a ceasefire, release of all hostages, and immediate humanitarian aid. Now, there are going to be people who are more on the Palestinian side of this that are, I already know, I've already gotten the calls, that are upset because we didn't talk about genocide, we didn't talk about occupation, and there are folks more on the Israeli side who are like, you didn't say Israel has a right to exist, you didn't condemn Hamas. I respect those feelings and I get that, but once that's not our, that I didn't, we didn't see that as that being our role, right? It was not, if we had talked about genocide and occupation, we would have been taking a side in this conflict and alienating, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jewish residents in Cambridge. That wasn't going to help heal our city. If we came down too hard the other way, it wasn't with thousands of Muslims living in Cambridge, it wasn't going to help heal our city. So, you know, we had to, we had to, we get that it's not going to make everybody happy the way we did it because they want us to fight for them and their issue and what they see is the right thing. But we as a council have to think more broadly. We have to try and think about everybody. Yeah. And so we tried to craft something that we think does that. And, um, you know, it'll be on the agenda Monday night and we'll see, we'll see what happens. All right. Um, I told you I talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, like this kind of protest that stemmed out of this, um, is also not like the, the first time that this has happened, um, at the city council either. Um, recently and particularly since the pandemic, there've been, um, a lot of activists protesting everything from, uh, your addressing of the police shooting of, uh, Saeed Faisal to the war in the Middle East and, um, with like all of these kind of in succession. What do you think is the root cause of the sort of discontent, uh, particularly a, a young, um, sorry, among young people in Cambridge? Um, well, I mean, part of this is that, you know, these issues are not just Cambridge issues, and a lot of the people protesting are not Cambridge people who are protesting, mm -hmm. right? You know, what, you know, what happened to Faisal was horrific and horrible and, and, and a tragedy, and um, but there are people from outside Cambridge who are using that tragedy to say, look at what, you know, we should defund the police, we should abolish the police, right? So it has an impact w far beyond us, right? Um, I mean, we get a lot of emails that are, you know, when I voted present on the ceasefire resolution, I got emails from other countries, I got emails from other parts of the country saying, I'll never vote for you again. And I was like, well, you live in San Antonio, <laughs> Texas, you can't vote for me anyway. Um, but, um, you know, they were cut and paste, you know, emails. So these things with social media, with, you know, the reach that people have now, these, these issues are getting, there's a lot of people who aren't from our community who are participating in this conversation, yeah. which, again, it's their right to do that. Um, you know, but I think you know, I, th I, th I think that, that there's always been advocates and activism in Cambridge, right? It's sort of what, what we're known for. In some ways, it's not a lot different than, um, you know, when people have protested things in the past. Um, you know, I don't know if, if the discontent among 
young people is greater or less now than it was then. I think there's more avenues now for people to express that discontent. Um, you know, I do think that there's, you know, we do live in a time where where everybody is really stressed, really anxious. Um, the political atmosphere is really tense and divisive. Um, and that's kind of worked its way down from national to, to state, now to local. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I understand sort of that, you know, that, that, that anxiety. Um, you know, in general, and, and as I said before, I totally respect people's right to protest peacefully, even if it's loud, it's still peaceful. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think, you know, at some point, you have to be willing to kind of sit around the table with people and have a conversation about how we're going to resolve what it is we want to resolve. I don't think shouting at people necessarily gets you to the best place. You know, it can drive people further away from what it is you're trying to accomplish. So, um, you know, maybe I feel that way now because I'm 55 years old and when I was 25 years old, maybe maybe I didn't feel quite the same way. Um, so I do think, you know, we, 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 you know we've had these protests, we've, we've, we've heard, we've listened. Um, I'm not sure if they're still effective or, or, or not. I think I think I would I would really hope that we could have an opportunity around these issues to try and bring people together in a more um, peaceful and collaborative conversation rather than screaming at each other because it's really hard to listen to what somebody's saying when they're screaming at you or calling you names, right? You tend, I mean, that's human nature. We shut down, right? Mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a social worker and I do a lot of work with families and I do a lot of training for parents over the years and stuff and I say, look, if you have a child at home who's acting out and they're throwing a tantrum and they're, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. that's not the best time to have a conversation with them about, you know, the proper way to problem solve or how to express them because they can't hear you because they're charged, right? And they're having this crisis. You can't have a rational conversation when people are always in crisis. You've got to find the time when it's, when things are settled down to sort of bring people together. Say, okay, now that we're all calm, now that we're not yelling at each other, now that we're not calling each other names, now that we're not, you know, um, trying to, you know, put on a show, you yeah. know, now let's sit down and talk about what can we really do? Mm -hmm. What? Tell me how you really feel. Tell me what you, you know, what, let's talk about this. Let's work this out. I, I, I want us to do more of that. Yeah. You know, um, but again, you know, people have the right to, you know, to protest and I'm sure they will continue. Yeah, um, and uh, I think that that actually perfectly segues into um, an another thing I wanted to ask you about, which is um, how do you think like being a social worker and seeing those situations in like other places has um, informed like how you work with people in politics and in the council and when things like this happen? Yeah. Um, you know, we all bring our own education, background, expertise to the table, right? And so, you know, there are some people on council, you know, when Councilor Carlone was there, you know, he obviously understood zoning a lot better mm -hmm. than, than most of the rest of us because that was kind of his world. Um, and so I think I, I, I teach, um, so twice a year I, 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 I teach one class in this series on for social workers who are thinking about running for public office and so it's 
it's all around the country and and I teach one of the units twice a year and talk about you know why they're making this decision to run and what could they bring to the table and why is it important for social workers to run and one of the things I say is that I think that you know nobody goes into social work for the money right I never ma- I had I've been a social worker for 30 years I have never made more than $55,000 a year as a salary okay um, you go into it because you want to try and make a difference you want to try and help people you believe in people's capacity to change you believe in uh, you know government's ability to change um, you want to make you want you know people to live better lives right that's why you do it yeah and so when you come to public service or elected office with that being part of who you are yeah. not just your education but why you got into that field in the first place yeah. you look at things a little bit differently I mean it's no secret that affordable housing and homelessness and substance use disorder and mental health and um, you know food insecurity that those are the things that I that I work on, right? Because that's, those are the things that I believe make tangible differences in people's lives. And so, you know, I think having someone with that perspective is important on the council, just like it's important that, you know, I'm not sure you want nine social workers, right? We would talk things to death and maybe never make a decision. (laughs) Um, So it's good to have people of different, you know, different backgrounds and different experiences. But for me, you know, I think it's helped me connect more with people in the community, the vulnerable people in our community. Um, you know, who are the people that I, I, I try to fight for and, and, and help, right? Um, you know, the other part where it, it's interesting is, is I was, um, when Maura Healy was running um, for governor, she had different, um, she had different groups at, on different policy issues. So one was health and human services. And I was the co-chair of her policy committee. And, you know, I would go to these, I would co-chair these meetings with people from all around the state, mostly medical professionals and, and, and um, from around the state who were incredibly brilliant, talked in a language I didn't really understand <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, but one of the things that was interesting was they were all kind of, in the 100,000 foot view of things, right? They were all administrators. They were all kind of, you know, looking at things sort of top down. Whereas a social worker, I kept bringing the conversation back to, well, tell me how a homeless person is going to access what it is you're talking about, right? How, you know, when we ask someone to provide 50 different types of identification before they can apply for a housing voucher, like, you know, let's understand the barriers that that that, that brings up for people. Um, you know, when you're required to, you know, fill out, you know, 30-page documents every six months so that you stay on a list, like that's that's gonna that's gonna be really hard for certain people, right? So so it was an interesting, you know, I couldn't really talk about the national Medicaid funding and all that kind of stuff. It was a little bit out out of my realm, but I was able to keep bringing everybody back to. Let's actually center the people we're talking about helping and what is this going to be like for them and how do we make sure that this works for them. So that's what social workers are able to do, right? Yeah. Let's bring it back. You, you could pass any policy, any program, but saying, all right, how is this actually going to be implemented? How is this actually going to roll out? How are people actually going to access those services? That's something that we have experience with because that's stuff that we help people with. I help people navigate bureaucratic systems for 30 years. Yeah. 
So I understand what works well. I understand what doesn't work well. So I can bring that, mm-hmm. you know, to these discussions, and, and I, I try to. Yeah. Um, and uh, on a, an- another note, um, in your inauguration speech, you lauded former Mayor Siddiqui for leading Cambridge through the pandemic. Um, she was your f- first choice to replace you at the end of your term. Uh, recently, some accusations came out that uh, Siddiqui led a toxic workplace while mayor. Did you ever notice any sign that may have contributed to this? Um, no, um, I wasn't. I wasn't in the mayor's office a lot over over the last few years. I mean, for certainly her first term during COVID, none of us <laughs> were around. Yeah. Um, but in this last term, I, 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 you know, if I went to the mayor's office, you know, it would go. I was there to go and talk to her about about something. So I wasn't like I was around there daily to note, you know, in her office to notice anything. Um, you know, I will say that that running a mayor's office is is can be challenging. Um, you you have to um, you know, there's a lot of responsibility there, and there's a lot of um, sometimes you have to make unpopular decisions within your own staff. Um, and so I, I I understand that it that it's hard, but I think you know you should always try strive to. Um, you know, create you know create a healthy work environment where, where people feel valued and are valued and and can be heard, and I'm not saying she didn't do that. I, I honestly don't know, mm-hmm. um, but I also know that it's you know it's it, it, sometimes it's not it's it's I didn't have the easiest time with you know when I was mayor at times with some of my staff right and and you know it was you know how do you keep a team pulling in the same direction and working together and how do you create an environment where everybody you know, feels appreciated and welcomed and, and, and has a voice when at the same time the buck stops with you and you yeah. have to be the one that finally, you know, makes a final decision. So it's, it's, it's hard, um, but no, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to any, directly to any of those okay. accusations. I didn't, I wasn't part of that. All right. Um, and um, uh, n- another big development that's happened um, recently was um, the uh, president of Harvard um, stepped down one of the largest Cambridge institutions, oldest Cambridge institutions. Um, and there was kind of some talk around how tied into this was, because the, you know, the official um, story was kind of plagiarism, but this followed the uh, Senate questionings about the Israel-Hamas war, and um, as a branch off from that, many people are saying that this was kind of racially mo- motivated. So as someone in a kind of high position um, in Cambridge who is kind of um, like a lot more up close and personal than some of the like news reporters miles and miles away, what's your perspective on this? Yeah, um, you know, I, I you know, sort of interesting that the three university presidents that they called mm-hmm. to testify were all women. Yeah. I thought that was, you know, maybe that was intentional. Um, you know, I think, you know, when you watch, when you watch something from the outside, when you watch either a congressional hearing or, you know, whatever, I don't know if you do this, but I, you know, I sit there saying like, "Oh my God, say this or don't say that." And yeah. you're, you know, you're 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 playing, you know, Monday morning quarterback, as they say, right? You're second guess. If I were in that chair, I would have much harder when you're actually in the chair, 
right? Mm -hmm. And you're answering those questions directly and you've got to, you know, kind of think on your feet and you've got, you know, cameras in your face and, and, and people around. So it's very easy to be a spectator and second guess, mm -hmm. okay? Um, but I'm gonna do that. <laughs> um, you know, I did feel that I thought her answers to the committee were written by lawyers yeah. who want to be very careful, right, about what you say or don't say. Um, and it came across that way, which, you know, I think could have, you know, turned out to be kind of problematic for her. I'll give you an example. So the, what's, what's the one, the congresswoman's name from New York who was sort of with oh, an yeah. S, I forget her name. I think <laughs> I try to wipe her out of my memory. Um, uh, Elisa Stefanik. Stefanik, right. Who, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm going to get on that tangent. Um, but she kept saying, one of her questions she, that she kept harboring was, you know, when a student says the word infratata, is that, you know, do you believe that that's calling for a genocide of, of Israel? And the congresswoman said that word eight times <laughs> or whatever during her questioning, mm -hmm. right? If I were sitting in that chair, I would have said, Congresswoman, you know, context is important. Yeah. You've just said the word eight times. Yeah. Should we now accuse you of wanting or being anti-Israel and wanting, you know, and being anti-Semitic? No, because you're using it in a certain context. Those are the same things I have to grapple with as a university president. Is the person saying it, using it in a context that is threatening and inciting violence, or is that person using it in a context that's not doing that? Yeah. And those are the things that we have to struggle with on a university where we strive for free speech. We strive for people to express their opinions. We want to be a place where people can grapple with these issues. It is very complicated. That's would have been my answer, yeah. right? Yeah. And I would have turned it right back on her and said, you've said the word a bunch of times, right? So, you know, it's complicated, but mm -hmm. you know, in general, I mean, this is a, look, I, I wouldn't want to be a university president in, in that situation. I mean, you know, you have to, like I said about people having the right to protest, people have the right to protest. You don't have the right to incite violence. Yeah. You don't have the right to call for violence, mm -hmm. right? Or to threaten people with violence. Um, but you do have a right to your opinion on whatever the issue, whatever the issue happens to be. And, and you know, free speech is, you know, free speech is great when we all agree with what's being said, right? It's mm -hmm. really complicated when you don't agree with us. I mean, this is the ACLU defending the Klan, right? Like, yeah. you know, we all say we value free speech until somebody says something that we find really offensive and horrific, and then we say those people should shut up. Yeah. Now, if those people are inciting violence or calling for violence or targeting somebody, well, then, yeah, now they violated it. Free speech, free speech is not absolute, mm -hmm. right? You can't do those things. You can't yell fire in a theater, right? Um, but, you know, there's balancing that is really hard. And it's hard on a in, in a university setting when you really want to encourage people to debate, right? And to have conflict on some level, right? That's kind of how you learn in a lot of ways. So, you know, I don't think her answers were great. Um, you know, I think they were more, you know, they were legal answers mm -hmm. that, um, you know, could have been better, but she's also, you know, I'm not a university president. Yeah. She's not a, a politician. Yeah. <laughs> she's got skills. I got skills. 
you know, maybe I would have answered it differently and maybe I would have faced the same fate. I don't, you know, I don't know. But, you know, it is easy to sit on the outside and say, oh, why did you, you know, why did, why'd you call that play? Why'd you do that? You should have done this. You should, you know, um, much harder when you're sitting in the chair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, sort of off of some of these bigger topics, um, a little bit more about you. You grew up in Central Square, where we are right now, and you went to high school really close by at uh, CRLS, um, where you also worked around for 10 years. And now you work at City Hall, which is also near Central Square. How do you think this neighborhood has affected your outlook on life, and what has it taught you about the people of Cambridge? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, C Central, I mean, Central Square is probably our most diverse area in the city, most diverse square, busiest square. Um, you know, so I grew up, you know, surrounded by people from all over the world, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of hustle and bustle and a lot of, you know, I mean, I was friends with kids whose parents were Harvard professors and I was friends with kids who were in public housing, right? That's, I mean, that's the beauty of this city, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so you saw a lot of that, you know, in Central Square. Um, it was really interesting because during this last election, when we were talking about affordable housing and the affordable housing overlay amendments that I was supporting, what was really interesting is it. Some of the the comments really show, and I maybe I knew this before, but maybe it was just it slapped me in the face a little bit harder um, in this election, is that. People have really different ideas about what makes Cambridge a special place. And a lot of that is based on where you live, right? Yeah. So if you live in a part of Cambridge where there aren't tall buildings, where there's not a lot of hustle and bustle, that's more, you know, maybe not as diverse as some other parts of Cambridge, a um, lot more suburban mm -hmm. feel, and you love it, right? Because that's, that's a nice, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's great to live in those neighborhoods too. Um, then you're going to say you know, you're going to say things like, and we saw some of the candidates running for council who who didn't win, but who said this. You know, Cambridge is a small village; it's a quaint village. We're small neighborhoods. We're a quiet town. Now, I'm not saying they're wrong to believe that. I that's not the perspective. That's not what I see yeah. in Cambridge, right? That's not what I think makes Cambridge special. You know, I see Cambridge as a multicultural, international, vibrant city that is the economic driver of the region. And I love, you know, I, I love the, the energy, right? Yeah. But that's probably because I grew up in Central Square, mm -hmm. right? And that's what I'm surrounded by. Um, you know, I love that, you know, we get, we get into all these debates about signage, right, on build, you know, on restaurants. I love that Central Square is lit up. Yeah. You know, I love it. I find that, I mean, that I think that's exciting. I think it's vibrant. I think it, it's lively, right? It's, it's got energy. Um, you know, if I wanted to, you know, if I wanted to live in Wellesley, I'd move to Wellesley, right? Um, so what I think makes Cambridge special is often different than what some other people think makes Cambridge special. And again, I'm not saying who's right or who's wrong, but I think a lot of that is based on the fact that I grew up in Central Square, yeah. right? And and that has formed my opinions about life, the world, um, why I became a social worker, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways, um, and just sort of what you know what I think makes Cambridge great. So yeah, I mean it's 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 obviously had a huge impact in in, in my life, and you know it's changed a lot. 
Um, I know there's a lot of talk now about some of the struggles in Central Square, and there are certainly challenges. Those challenges have kind of existed for as long as I can remember in Central Square. Um, but I think we also have a tendency to romanticize history. Central Square was not a great place in the 70s when I was growing up. There was a lot more crime, a lot more rundown places, a lot of the housing was rundown, um, unemployment was higher. Like, people like to say, oh, I wish it was, you know, I wish it was the way it was when I grew up because we romanticize. We, we tend to remember the good things, you know. Um, but I, I think Central Square is great today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have challenges, obviously, that we have to continue to work on and 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 deal with. But I think Central Square gets kind of a bad rap. I think I think you know, there's so much. You know, you hear people call it Mental Square. I hate it when people call it that. Um, and these, that's even people who live here, right? Um, because it just it, it it you know it's it 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 gives people the wrong image. I mean, Central Square is again, it's 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 vibrant. We have great restaurants. We have great shops. We have, we're lively. We have. Um, you know, we come down here in the summer and everything's lit up at night and people are sitting outside eating and like, that's great. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's certainly a mixed bag, but it definitely played a huge role in my life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, kind of as an extension of that, something that's kind of been more so on the edges, kind of near Kendall Square, but gradually moving up um, towards Central Square has been this kind of one-two punch of um, like biotech companies followed by a lot of gentrification mm -hmm. in that area. And that's caused, you know, housing prices to soar and uh, a lot of this precious land being kind of eaten up. and. Why do you think, or I, I guess not why do you think this has happened, but what do you think is the best plan for dealing with this? And I know you said that like, you know, we, we don't want to return back to the Central Square Cambridge of the 70s, but do you think that there is maybe a middle ground where um, we're not like gentrific uh, gentrifying our neighborhoods and also we can keep all those good things like high employment, low crime, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I think it's a delicate balance. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why housing prices have soared, uh, not just the fact that biotech is has replaced factories in in Cambridge. That's obviously you know a chunk of it. We have not kept up with the demand in terms of housing, um, which is why I support changing zoning and allowing more housing to be built and you know, geographically, we're a very small city, and when you take out what Harvard owns and what MIT owns and what the city owns in terms of our municipal buildings and Danahy Park and Fresh Pond and Cambridge Common, not, you're not talking about a whole lot of land left to build on, right? And so we have to build taller buildings. Mm -hmm. I know some people don't like that, but uh, unless we plan on invading Belmont and yeah. doubling <laughs> our size, I don't know what another, you know, I'm not interested in, you know, I don't know, do you remember the game SimCity? Yeah. Right? This is not a game of SimCity. We're not starting from scratch where we get to design our city. Anyway, we, we have to we have to deal with the cards we've been dealt, right? And the cards we've been dealt is a very small city. Um, with it's a very high demand, you know, for people who want to live here for all the reasons that we want to live here, right? So, 
So there's a lot of reasons why housing prices have gone up. Now, certainly, you know, what biotech brought in and the innovation economy brought into Cambridge is you've now got people moving into Cambridge who are making a lot more money than my grandmother was making when she worked at Polaroid, right, uh, on an assembly line. So um, those folks can afford to pay higher rents for the property that, that exists here. So they're going to outbid a teacher. They're going to outbid a social worker. They're going to outbuild, outbid, you know, people who, you know, who are sort of more middle, you know, traditionally middle income, right? Um, and so, you know, that has had a huge effect on, on, on housing prices. But if we were building more housing to try and meet that demand, there's a, the, the, the um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name, the Dukakis Center at Northeastern does a, a Metro Boston housing report card. And I, I don't know if they do it every year or every two years. Um, but one of the things they talk about sort of in, in, in every version is that if a city can get its vacancy rates to about 5%, you start to see rents decreasing. Cambridge's vacancy rate is 1%, 1.5%. So we're not even close to that. And so that's why we need to build more housing. Um, you know, in general, I think, you know, when when I was in school, in this elementary school and stuff in the 70s, um, you know, I went, to a, a, I went to the Agassiz, which is now the Baldwin, but I went to the old building, not the, rent, the one that was, there was one, I think it was rebuilt in like the 90s or whenever it was rebuilt, but I went to the old building. We didn't have a cafeteria, barely had a gym, Heater was always broken, you know, in the winter. We'd have jackets on in our classroom. The windows had wind whipping through them. Um, you know, that was not a great, you know, I loved the experience. I loved the kids, and, and, and I'm still friends with, you know, kids I went to elementary school with. But the building was crap. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was 120 years old when I got there. Yeah. And, you know, now we're rebuilding three brand new schools, net zero, state-of-the-art facilities, roughly gonna cost the city $600 million in total, maybe even a little bit more. And we did that without raising anybody's property taxes, without virtually no state money coming in. And we did that because we have a AAA bond rating and we can borrow money at virtually low to no interest. Yeah. That AAA bond rating doesn't happen if Kendall Square looks like it did in 1970. Yeah. Right. So, you know, there is, there are downsides to it. There's no question that there are downsides to it. But we are also able to do things in this city that no other community can do because of our financial stability. And we're able to do that because we have a strong economy. And so, yeah, it's not, very few things are all great or all bad, right? And yeah. this is what, you know, yes, has it had, has it had an impact? Sure. It has, and some of that impact has been negative. Um, you know, it's also, you know, when you talk about gentrification and you talk about displacement, it's an interesting conversation because you have rental displacement, mm -hmm. right? So you have people who are in the rental market, which is the majority of the city, and they get displaced because, you know, their landlord can now get $4,000 a month instead of $1,000 a month, right? So the landlord says, there's no limit. We With the loss of rent control, you also lost the ability to um, put a cap on how much landlords can raise rents. So the landlord can raise a rent 300%, right? So um, 
those people are getting displaced. You have other people in Cambridge, a lot of old-time Cambridge families, who bought their homes for $50,000. I mean, my family's owned the same home since 1918. I think my great-grandfather paid 27 cents for it. I don't, <laughs> know what, I don't know what he paid for it, right? I should probably find that out. Um, and now that's worth millions of dollars. Yeah. And so, so you had a lot of families that said, hey, I'm cashing in. This is my retirement. This is my investment. You know, see you later, 15-degree weather. I'm going to sell my house for $2 million and go retire to the Bahamas. Or you get the kids or the grandkids of the people who used to live there who now live somewhere else, and they say, hey, this is a huge amount of money. We're just going to – I don't really think of that as displacement. Like that's – you're making that – no one's forcing you to do that. You're making that decision because it's financially in your best interest to make that decision. And if you're making that decision willingly – then you then that's your decision, right? I don't see that in the same way as I see, you know, somebody saying, "Hey, we're going to raise your rent by two thousand dollars a year," and now you're like, "Damn, I can't afford that." Now I, I'm forced to leave. So there's some there are some nuances in this conversation too. Um, you know, the problem with the housing prices being what they are is that that then also limits. You know, even though the people selling those homes may be doing so willingly and cashing in on their investment, so I don't feel as badly for them. But what it does mean too is that who can then buy those two million dollar yeah. homes, right? Yeah. And those two million dollar homes are not going to working class people because they can't afford two million dollar yeah. homes. That's where the gentrification yeah. comes in, right? It's not. It's 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 that they're so expensive that you're you're seeing a lot of foreign investment. You're seeing a lot of people investing. You know, as a as a Literally not, you know, literally as an investment to make money to resell that home sort of down the road because Cambridge real estate prices only go up for the most part. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a, that's a slightly different, you know, spin on it. But yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I'm glad that Kendall Square reinvented itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you, there's a, t- my wife is from way upstate New York, like Canadian border upstate New York. And when we drive to see her mother, we go through all these old manufacturing towns and cities that manufacturing left, factories closed. They never replaced them with anything. And let me tell you, you don't want to live there. You know, there's main streets are boarded up. The opioid crisis is through the roof. Everybody's on public assistance. Schools are falling apart. They have no money, mm-hmm. right? Because there's no, there's no industry there. They lost it all. I don't want to be that, Yeah. <laughs> right? Housing would be cheaper, but I don't want to be that. So I'm glad that Kendall Square has reinvented itself. Now, that also means that we then have to capitalize on that and make sure that we're taking care of our people. And and that's what I think some of the frustration is in Cambridge, and at least with me, is that we have so many resources. Why is it that one in eight children go to bed hungry in our city? Yeah. Right? That's unacceptable in a city with the resources we have. Um, Why is it that we have 500 homeless people on our streets on any given night? Yeah. Right? So we have all these tremendous resources and we do a lot of great things with it, with them, but we got to do more to take care of the most vulnerable people in our community. And, and that's what I push for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and talk a little bit more about those efforts that you've kind of made in those areas to um, like combat those problems of um, like food instability and um, being unhoused and um, talk about like why do you think 
um, with so many of these neighborhoods around Cambridge um, experiencing kind of like the revitalization that they're going through, why do you think these problems are still such big, such big problems for our city? Yeah. Well, these pro I mean, these are not problems that are solely Cambridge's problems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, every city in this country is struggling with homelessness and substance use disorder, and um, nobody's figured it out, um, certainly not larger cities. Um, you know, and I often say that if you – we have a really – people who are from Massachusetts have a really weird sense of distance. If I said to you – we finished this podcast, and I said to you, Tomas, you know, there's a great restaurant in Framingham that we should try. Let's go there for dinner. You would be like, what the hell are you talking about, <laughs> right? I'm not going to Framingham, right? Well, Framingham's 25 minutes away. When my kid lived in L.A., he had to drive more than that to get to the supermarket, right? Yeah. We don't think regionally in Massachusetts. If you picked up Cambridge, Boston, Somerville, and Everett, let's say, mm -hmm. we would probably all fit inside Chicago. Right? But here were these little fiefdoms, different forms of government, different identities. We don't talk to each other. We don't work together. And yet we're all dealing with the same stuff. Yeah. Right? So Mayor Wu does a sweep of Mass and Cass in Boston, where we were when you were touring, when you were shadowing me for a week. Um, she does a sweep in Boston. Well, where do you think a bunch of those people end up? They get on the number one bus and they come to Central Square. Do we know? Does anyone coordinate? with us that, hey, you know, we're doing this in Boston and you're going to probably see some new faces and, it, you know, here's who they are and what, is there any coordinate? No, there's no coordination. Um, yet we're all impacting each other, whether it's housing or the environment or transportation, or whatever. So we got to deal with this stuff on a regional level as well as on a local level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and it's hard because, you know, the reality is, you know, we have about 500 homeless people on our streets on any given night. That's what the census count tells us every year. It's always right, 450, 500, 525. It's all in that ballpark. We could place all those people in housing tomorrow. Theoretically, I mean, we couldn't, but let's say we could. Within two weeks, there'd be 500 more unhoused people on the streets of Cambridge because it's sort of this revolving door. Right? A lot of the people you see who are unhoused in Cambridge are people who have been unhoused in the community for a while. But a lot of times, we, we place about 100, a little over 100 unhoused folks in housing every year. They just get, they're just new people fill those, you know, come in. And, and it's because this is a national problem, right? And not everybody is a Cambridge person. Like they, people come from Springfield and Worcester and Boston, and some people come from out of state. And um, so, you know, this is much larger than Cambridge. Um, but what we should do, you know, what we have to do here is I've always advocated for looking at kind of short-term and long-term kind of goals, right? The short-term is how are we making sure that people have food tonight? Yeah. How do we make sure that people are warm tonight, right? It's cold out there, you know? Um, you know, how do we make sure that, that people have, you know, medical care, you know, today, right? Yeah. Then the bigger, longer-term pictures of, you know, how do we build enough housing to house everybody that needs it? How do we fund vouchers so that, you know, for those folks who are unhoused who maybe don't have an income, you know, vouchers so that the vouchers pay their rent, you know, because they don't have the money to pay their rent. Um, you know, people are also unhoused for lots of different reasons, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, the pe you only see a portion of the unhoused 
when you walk through Central Square out in the street. There's a lot of people that they have jobs and they're living in their car. You know, they're maybe in a domestic violence shelter. Mm -hmm. They're couch surfing, right? So they're not, in, in the state's opinion, if you are sleeping on someone's floor, you're not considered unhoused, right? So you can't access certain things and certain services and certain vouchers and certain programs that you could if you were living under a bridge, right? Um, and so, but those people that are unhoused too, they don't yeah. have a stable place to live. They could be kicked out on the street at any given day. And, you know, do we want people sleeping on people's floor? You know, I mean, it's just, mm -hmm. so it's really, really complicated. And if we could solve it, we, you know, easily we would. Where my frustration sometimes gets with the city is we're so risk adverse. We're so afraid of screwing up at times that we get paralyzed. Um, you know, try something, right? Like I've been pushing for a day drop-in center for the unhoused for years, mm -hmm. and I've toured these in other cities. You don't want people being outside in Carl Barron Plaza. You know, the businesses don't want them there. You don't want people sitting outside. Well, then give them a place to go. Yeah. So create a welcoming place. It's not some rundown, third-hand furniture, crappy, peeling paint, who would want to be there, right? Create an, a, a welcoming, nice, state-of-the-art facility where people can go and they can not only get food and watch a movie or get, get in out of the cold or out of the heat, but in these other places, they have a barber there, right? So they can yeah. get a haircut. They have get health care for the homeless there so that they can get medical needs met. Have a housing liaison there so to help them sign up, you know, for, uh, you know, for housing lists. They have showers. They have laundry. They have, like... We need to create something like that. And we have been talking about this, and I have been through three city managers, you know, on this subject. And every single one of them says, yeah, 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 you know, that, you know, we should do something. Like that. Nobody's pulled the trigger on it. And, you know, it's time, you know, I'm, I'm sick of talk mm -hmm. on a lot of these issues. And the more we talk, someone's going to freeze to death. You know, I have a friend of mine, um, he may, you may have met him when you were with me for the week because he comes into my off office all the time, Gary Martin. and. He graduated a couple years ahead of me in high school, and we didn't really become friends until about 10 years ago. Um, you know, substance use issue, unhoused, really caring guy, really loyal guy, really, when I would try to help him get housing for himself, he would always say, no, no, no somebody else needs it more, let me bring so-and-so in, don't give it to me, I'm fine on the street. Um, we were finally able to convince him to get housing, um, he ended up facing eviction because he couldn't say no to people who wanted to come and crash in his house, because in his apartment, because they were on the street. And he was like, well, I don't want you to be cold. You can come in. And that caused problems. Yeah. Um, he died of an overdose two weeks ago by himself. And, you know, like I'm sick of... I'm sick of going to these memorials. I'm sick of reading these people's names, right? We know that this is a crisis, and yet, you know, it takes so long for us to try and implement things. It, I tried to get Narcan in city buildings. It took me two years to convince our public health department. We have defibrillators in city buildings. All I wanted was a little box with Narcan in it, Narcan, you know, some, I don't know if you know what Narcan is, but yeah, Narcan yeah. is, you know, for the folks who don't know, yeah. if somebody overdoses, you, it's like a nasal spray. Totally harmless if you're not 
if you ha if you don't have opioids in your system, you can take it and it doesn't hurt you. So it's not like you're giving somebody something that's risky or whatever. It, you know, if you make a mistake, if they've passed out for a different reason and you give them Narcan, it just won't do anything. Um, two years to try and get that in city buildings. Well, how are we going to order it? Who are we going to order it from? And who's going to change, you know, when it, when it expires? Who's going to change it? Okay, I get it. It's complicated. We can figure that stuff out as we go. Just do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think my frustration with the city sometimes is that we just, we don't move fast enough on these critical issues. Um, five years in a city's life is nothing. But five years of living on the street or struggling with addiction is life or death. Yeah. Right? So long way from your question once, it, once I get going. But, um, you know, but I think we have to be more intentional. I think we have to move faster. Um, I think we have to be willing to try things even if at the end of the day they don't work out. Um, I want a little less talk and a little more action on, on, on these issues. Um, you know, some of the things you mentioned in, in your question around hunger. When I was mayor, I eliminate. I worked to get funding in the budget to eliminate the reduced lunch program. Right. So if you go to school, you fill out a federal form, and if you qualify, you get free lunch, or you get reduced pay, or you have to pay for lunch. And those income levels are based on national numbers, not local. Mm -hmm. So if you're a family of four and you earn you know, under $24,000 or more than $24,000 a year, you might not qualify for something because the federal poverty guideline for a family of four is $24,500. Mm -hmm. Might have gone up a little bit. Um, so I said, look, we have all these families that don't qualify for free lunch, may not even qualify for reduced lunch, um, but they still can't afford it because living in Cambridge is so expensive. So screw it. Let us pay for it. And every kid gets to eat breakfast and lunch for free. And we did that. Mm -hmm. Right? And now every kid who from preschool through high school who goes to the Cambridge Public Schools, they get free breakfast and lunch. Um, you know, is that going to like dramatically change the world? Maybe not. Kids are now getting two healthy meals a day that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise gotten, right? So that's the, that's the great part of doing this work yeah. and being in an elected office to think that, like, nobody knows. I mean, that kid who goes and gets that hot meal for breakfast, he doesn't know, oh, Mayor McGovern did that. Like, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know. He doesn't care. It's not about me. But yet he gets the benefit of it, right? And that's, the, that's like, why I do this mm -hmm. and what's so wonderful about this and, and this work, that you can really have an impact – on people's lives for decades to come, you know, and you know that's what kind of keeps keeps the fire burning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and kind of to tie into what you were saying earlier about sort of the um, bureaucratic nature of trying to deal with a lot of these problems that are bigger than just the city of Cambridge. Uh, I do feel like sometimes um, problems that are sort of more complex in their nature can kind of butt heads with the limitations of city government. So uh, I guess the question is, is there a reason that you've chosen to keep your priorities solely within Cambridge and not run for like a state or federal level or try and impact more people with you know sweeping legislation? Um, is there a reason that you've chosen to stay here and push things through at this level when there can still be 
all these kinds of constraints of you're working with problems that go beyond city limits. Yeah. Um, whatever constraints that we have locally, they're more at the state house, <laughs> right? You're you're talking about, um, you know, here, you know, I have to I work with eight other counselors, who, like I said, are all kind of similar in terms of what they believe in. Um, and you know, there are hurdles and there are frustrations, you know, with city government and like, you know, not moving as fast as we w we would want. But that's even worse higher up mm -hmm. the political chain. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to get something passed at the state house. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, people look at Massachusetts and say, you know, oh, we're the bluest, you know, the, we're the bluest state in mm -hmm. the country. There's a lot of purple here, yeah. you know. Um, and there's a lot, uh, a Democrat from, you know, I won't say a town because then someone will say that I'm bad-mouthing <laughs> them. But, you know, a, 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 a state representative who's a Democrat from, some South Shore community yeah. is not necessarily a Cambridge Democrat, yeah, right. And so, but yet you'd still have to get them to try and vote for what you want. So I think there's, I think I'd probably be even more frustrated yeah. at the state level. Um, and honestly, I mean, I you know I didn't get into politics because I think I didn't get into politics because I wanted to move up the political chain. I didn't get into it because oh, I'm going to be governor someday or I'm going to be a senator someday. That's not why I did it. I got into it because of my love of this city and wanting to make this city better. Mm -hmm. And I got into it on school committee because they had just gone through school consolidation. They closed you know, a number of schools. It was a really, really messy process. Um, it pitted communities, school communities against each other. My son was entering the public schools and I went to the public schools. Um, it was a time, you know, I remember when Cambridge was, people moved to Cambridge because of the public schools. And at the time, 20 years ago, people were leaving Cambridge because of the public schools. And I looked at that and said, we gotta do better, right? And I had worked as a social worker, I worked in therapeutic schools and special education. So I had my professional hat of a, someone who works in education. I had a kid who was gonna be in the public schools. I had my personal history of having graduated from the public schools here. And I thought, you know, I really could add something, you know, to this conversation. And that's, and that's why I ran. It wasn't about, oh, what's the next steps down the road. So, so for me, it's never really been about my upward political mobility, right? Um, you know, will I ever say, you know, can I, you know, I don't, maybe that changes, you know, at some point, you know, I mean, who knows, right? And you, um, you know, in terms of running for state representative, I live in Marjorie Decker's district. Mm -hmm. um, Marjorie's a friend of mine. I yeah. support Marjorie. Um, I would not run against Marjorie. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if Marjorie ever moves on from that seat and that seat opens up, you know, maybe I maybe I think about it. Maybe I don't. It depends on what my family situation is and personal situation is. Um, but right now, I'm really happy working on Cambridge and yeah. trying to make Cambridge a more socially and economically just community and um, you know, it's something nice about walking down the street and, and, and seeing people that, you know, from your community and knowing that you can help them and that they can approach you and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, I'm happy where I am and, um, you know, have no intentions of going anywhere for the time being. And, um, but I think, you know, as, like I said, as, as, as frustrating as it can be and bureaucratic as it mm -hmm. can be on the local level, it's worse the further up yeah. you go. Yeah. Um,
And I will say, for the past week, I've been in the state house shadowing uh, Senator uh, Domenico. Oh, cool. Actually, yeah. Well, Sal's, Sal and I went to high school together as well. Yeah. So I was Sal and Marjorie graduated together, and mm-hmm. I was I was a senior when they were freshmen. Marjorie and I served on the student school committee together, so we were the two student representatives on the school committee. Um, so yeah, so I, I've known Sal for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, um, but definitely just from being there a week, I, I can t- totally resonate with what you're talking about. Like, um, the like the the broader you go, the more purple it gets, and the more like roadblocks you encounter. So yeah, yeah totally yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, if you're um, you know if you're a state rep or a senator, if you if you get one thing through every couple of terms. <laughs> You're successful. Yeah. You know, I mean, so as frustrated as I am with the, you know, I, I probably pull my hair out a little bit if, if, if it was taking that long. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, just to wrap things up a little bit, um, as someone who both has kids and who um, has worked with many families as part of um, many of your jobs, what do you think is the biggest goal in making sure that Cambridge remains a great place to live for future generations? Um, so affordability, you know, I mean, my my kids can't come back and live here, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, the only way my kids are going to come back and live here is when my wife and I are dead and they move into <laughs> our, 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 our condo. Um, you know, and so I think affordability is, is really important. Um Education, um, you know, we spend a lot of money on our schools. Um, we have a school system that works tremendously well for certain kids and not well for others, mm-hmm. and that is often on class lines and, and race lines. Um, it's not a lot different than when I was in school here, and it's really frustrating that, you know, I graduated 35 years ago and more, and it's really frustrating that we're still struggling with the same issues we were struggling with, you know, back then. Um, but families, you know, if you want people to live here, they got to be able to afford to live here. They have to want to have their kids in the schools here. Um, you have to make sure you're a safe, you know, community, which I think, which I think we are. Um, you know, you have, you, you know, jobs are important, right? Like mo- a lot of people now, environmental concerns, you know, what have you, want to live closer to where they work. They don't want to sit in traffic for, th- for three hours, right? So. Um, you know, making sure we have a strong economy and a strong, strong job market. I mean, I, th- I think those are all things that, um, you know, people want and, and, and people, but, but the affordability is key. I mean, it, it's, we, we're losing a lot of, we're losing a lot of sort of what traditionally is sort of considered middle income families. Um, they, they make too much money to qualify for any of our affordable housing programs, but not enough to buy anything here. And so, you know, you have your second kid and you're faced with, okay, do we continue to live in a small condo with our kids sharing a room or do we buy a place in, I mean, I used to say Medford, but I don't think you can afford Medford anymore. You know, do you, do you buy, you know, do you buy a place in Brockton or Randolph, mm-hmm. you know? where you can buy a house still for $450,000, yeah. you know, um, and have a yard, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, if we make it unaffordable, I mean, I, you know, we're, we're, we're quickly becoming, and this has been going on for a while, this sort of dumbbell, right? You have a lot of really wealthy families that live here. 
you have a lot of really poor families that live here in, uh, in affordable housing or public housing. And then you got this little bar in the middle of families like mine that could never live here today, but are only here because we've been here forever and you know we have stable housing because we bought it you know a million years ago um and that's not good for a city you know and so you know how do we so the affordability component is 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 huge yeah um last question what advice do you have for anyone aspiring to a position in local government don't do no (laughs) (laughs) um no like i said it's 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 a lot of work Mm -hmm. And you have to be willing to, um, you really have to commit your your time and your life to it, right? Especially on a local level. You know, it's, um, you know, I could go walk in some other community and nobody knows who I am. I will guarantee you, I we are now, what, five blocks from my house? When I leave here today, it will probably take me 25 minutes to get home because I'm going to be stopped Mm -hmm. several times by people who are going to want to ask me a question or whatever. I love that. On on one level, I love that and I think it's great and that accessibility is really important. It can also take a lot out of you, Mm -hmm. right? So if if you want to do it, you got to make sure that you're committed to what the time it's going to take to do it, to, to do it well. You have to be comfortable with you know, being able to engage with people and, and, and listen to people and talk with people. And, um, you know, it's, I think, 30 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, there was a different respect factor for elected officials. People could would disagree with you, but they weren't, they didn't make it personal as much. Now it can be really hard, right? People don't just say, hey, Tomas, I disagree with you on your, your this vote, and I would have voted the other way. They say, I disagree with you on this vote, and I would have voted the other way. And by the way, you're a jerk, and you're stupid, and you're, right? I mean, I've had people come up and swear at me in front of my kids, right? That's hard, mm-hmm. right? And, and But the flip side is like what I was saying before, right? There are kids that are eating in the Cambridge Public Schools who maybe didn't, who had to skip a lunch or skip a breakfast before who don't have to do that anymore, right? There's 30 years from now when somebody goes into a affordable unit built under the affordable housing overlay, they're not going to know whether I sponsored it or didn't sponsor it or whether I supported it or didn't support it. They're going to know who the hell I am 30 years from now. What they're going to know is that the city has a program that is giving them an affordable place to live, mm-hmm. right? Like to be able to impact people's lives like that is awesome mm-hmm. but it's not easy yeah so my advice would be you know make sure you really want to do it make sure you really want to get into it for the right reasons yeah. you know make sure that that you know you can make the commitment to it um and go for it yeah uh uh, uh vice mayor uh, mcgovern thank you so much thank you um i i know i talked to you off, but you said <laughs> we had a long time so yeah. I, I was you know well we did yeah i mean it, Great to hear everything you have to say. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Anytime. I hope that, I mean, I hope I didn't drag on too much.